All right, this morning uh, I'm going to cover, we're going to jump all the way back to chapter 6. Chapter 6. My very first time I taught, uh, I was supposed to cover this chapter in another chapter, and I failed to do so. Um, so we're going to bounce back to this. Like I said, we're gonna, I'm going to try to keep this as short as possible. Um, and then I'll give it to Adam, and he'll go through the end times, the last things, the last judgment. Um, and uh, I figured he needed the, the bulk of the time um, to do that. So if somebody uh, would please read section 1 of chapter, or section 6, 6.1, uh, The Fall of Mankind's Sin and Its Punishment. Alright, uh, to start off with, I'm going to give a disclaimer as I usually try to do, that a lot of these things that I'm going to say today are not my own genuine thoughts, but they're the thoughts of many men that come before me, smarter men, uh, more learned men, and I've just kind of tried to synthesize a lot of these things that they've said as we go through the confession. Um, so the first thing um, I wanted to do in this first section is basically cover four main points that we need to make sure that we see here. Um, the first one was that humanity was created by God, holy and sufficient, <clears throat> with sufficient knowledge as to His holy will, capable of obedience, yet fallible, as the confession says, yet able to disobey, to fall. We might ask, why does God do these things? Why does He choose one thing over another? For His own glory, the confession says. Why did He choose to do it this way? When we think about creation, humanity, the ability to disobey, uh, what gives God maximal glory? Would robots able to only do what they were programmed to do? Robots that only could obey Him? Or would creatures who are able to choose, and when tested, choose Him or not? And when they don't, He sends His Son as a sacrifice for for the redemption of all mankind. Which one of those things gives God the maximal glory? Well, the confession tells us, the scripture tells us, that God did it this way to receive the most glory. Uh, The second thing I want us to see in this section uh, 1 is that Adam and Eve were seduced by the temptation and subtlety of Satan. We know this. And they sinned by eating the forbidden fruit. Um, They were not coerced into this sin. They were not forced into this sin. They chose it. Uh, The third thing that I want to recognize is that the temptation and sin were in God's sovereign plan. This was His purpose from the beginning. And the fourth thing is that God permitted the original act of sin, it says in that last sentence, and all subsequent acts of sin that we commit. Romans 8.28 says, All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. So God overrules the sins of His creatures for our good. It says, and in particular this sin, this first sin, He overrules it for our good. 
the chief end of all of God's purposes, it says, works in the manifestation of His own glory. That last sentence, it's for His own glory. And the, the other thing that I wanted to point out, that God is a jealous God, and Him wanting to be glorified is the right thing. He is the only one due glory. He desires it, He deserves it, so He gets it. And He does what He wants to get His own glory. Somebody would read uh, 6.2. Okay, so that first section we kind of talked, it kind of covers the fall. The The second section we're going to talk about the consequences of sin upon Adam and Eve is where its focus is. So it says, by their sin, they were immediately cut off with communion with God. They were cut off from all moral and spiritual life. They lost their original righteousness they were created with. But why did they lose it? Because they had violated their allegiance to God in the original covenant. They had broke faith with God and His commands. And because... Of this, love could no longer dominate in their hearts. Only sin. At this exact same time, they became dead in sin and completely defiled. Meaning that moral corruption not only extended to their physical body and all things, but their spiritual body as well, their soul. Um, This doesn't mean that Adam was as bad as he could be, but that no part of him remained righteous. His body and his soul were completely defiled. His soul, his nature, his conscience, his will, his understanding, his passions, his affections, his appetites, and his body were all made instruments of unrighteousness. Left in this state, humanity has no hope. Any questions over our first two sections so far? Okay, somebody would read 6.3. By God's appointment, they were the fruit and the representatives of the whole Because of this, the guilt of their sin was accounted, and their corrupt nature passed on to all their offspring who descended from them by ordinary procreation. Their descendants are now conceived in sin and are by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin and partakers of death, and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus sets them free. So the first section we covered the fall. The second section talks about the consequences, immediate consequences of the sin and fall on Adam and Eve. Now this is gonna this shows us the consequences of the first sin on all the descendants of Adam and Eve. So Adam, one thing I want to make sure we understand, Adam is both the natural father and the federal head of all mankind, excluding Christ. Uh, Federal, that word basically means that through man, through the normal procreation, sin passes to all mankind. Um, Two of the shorter catechism questions that the kids are going through right now, the first one uh, is question 16. Did all mankind fall in Adam's first transgression? The answer, the covenant being made with Adam not only for himself, but for his posterity. All mankind descending from him by ordinary generation sinned in him and fell with him 
in his first transgression. And question 18, wherein consists the sinfulness of the estate whereinto man fell? The sinfulness of that estate whereinto man fell consists of the guilt of Adam's first sin, the one of original righteousness, and the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. So he's the natural father, he's the federal head. Through him, all of our sin, where we get all of our sin nature and everything. That's why Christ isn't counted in that, because Christ was not brought to this earth in an ordinary procreation like everyone in this room was. He was um, conceived through the Holy Spirit. Um, So the second thing I wanted to point out um, in this section is the guilt of sin and their corrupt nature is passed on to the descendants through through birth, through ordinary procreation. procreation. Sorry. Um, So all people consequently are born without the Holy Spirit. When Adam and Eve created, they they were... God literally breathed the Spirit into Adam when He created him. So all people born after that are not born with the Spirit. All people are totally conceived in sin and totally depraved in every way, being bent toward holy, inclined to evil. In all subsequent sins, the confession says, of all the descendants of Adam proceed from this total moral depravity. So that's all descendants in all ages, at all times, in all nations, in all circumstances, all races, irregardless of any education they do or don't have, invariably sin as soon as they're capable of moral action. This is a universal fact. It applies to all people because it has a universal cause. All All men are born sinners. Sinful actions proceed from sinful hearts. We have a sinful heart when we're born. Our moral corruption is what prompts us to sin. Our corruption involves moral and, what I said earlier, spiritual blindness of the mind, heart, and our affections. This is our nature from birth, being dead in trespasses and sins. So our soul, our nature, our conscience, our will, our understanding, our passions, our affections, our appetites, and our body can only be restored through a supernatural act of God. It's the only way. Since we're corrupt in every way, we're incapable of change or reforming ourselves. As I've said before and Patrick said before, dead man can't change. Dead man can't do anything. We're dead in our sin. Any questions, comments, concerns? All right. Let's read the last two sections. I'll say a couple things and then I'll hand it over to Adam. Section point four and point five. Six point four, six point five. All actual transgressions arise from this first corruption. By it we are thoroughly biased against and disabled and antagonistic toward all that is good, and we are completely inclined toward all that is evil. And and five? Yep. Please. During this life this corruption of nature remains in those who are regenerated. Even though it is pardoned and put to death through Christ, yet both this corruption of nature and all actions arising from it are truly and actually sinful. Okay, so four things I want to point out, and then I'll uh, hand it over to Adam unless we have any questions. Um, So four things. The corrupt moral nature of original sin remains in those whom God regenerates as long as we live on this earth. That corrupt nature remains. The guilt... 
the just liability and the due punishment for sin is pardoned through the merits of Christ alone and those He chooses to redeem. But that moral nature remains. Our morally corrupt nature is gradually brought into subjection to Christ through sanctification. It does change, but it remains. And then the fourth thing that the confession points out, and I wanted to point out, was that all sinful feelings, emotions, thoughts, actions are truly prompted by that remaining sin nature that we have in us, the old man. And that although we are regenerate and we are able to choose the good now, we are able to choose to obey Him, we are able to choose to war against our sin nature because Christ lives in us, because the Spirit is in us. Though it remains, though He lives in us, we can now choose to fight against it. So, Any other... Any questions? Did I skip something I should have said? I think it is the good providence of our God that we actually end up connecting these two sections in in this fashion just by virtue of of time. Um, Because Preston here has taken us through these elements of sin... And the first, the first sin and the first consequences of that sin. And my chapter, chapter 32 of The Last Judgment, deals with the full and final resounding concluding judgment on sin and death and hell in, in, in the world and in, in history. So uh, we have three paragraphs here, and I probably have a... Re- Ridiculous amount of, of material for just three paragraphs, but we'll, we'll kind of see what we can get through. So in paragraph one, uh, I believe everybody kind of has, has access to that. So there's a couple of things I'm just kind of going to note about this, and then we're going to look at a passage of Scripture and we'll kind of work through some stuff. In paragraph one of chapter 32 of The Last Judgment, we affirm the reality of the judgment at Christ's return in glory, who will judge all the nations of the earth as king, Our confession says, to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father. We affirm that this judgment is universal, including apostate angels, which is kind of just alluded to in in a couple of, of passages, and all people who have ever lived. And we affirm that we will give an account of the overall body of our lives in word, thought, and deed, whether for good or for evil. Casey, could I have you read Matthew 25, <laughs> uh, 31 through 46. Matthew 25, 31 through the end of the chapter. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him... Uh, will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people uh, one from another, as as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. 
I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison? And did not minister to you. Then he will answer them saying. Truly I say to you. As you did not do it to one of the least of these. You did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous into eternal life. Thanks very much Casey. I appreciate that. Matthew 25. uh, That section that Casey just read. Is one of the, the most clear comprehensive passages we have concerning what some is referred to as the great white throne of judgment, the, the judgment day. So in this passage, we can take note of a number of things. One, this occurs at Christ's second bodily coming. We'll come back a little bit and talk a little bit more about timing in relation to this. But verse 31, this occurs at Christ's second bodily coming. Second, this is a joint judgment of believers and unbelievers, righteous and unrighteous, and is universal in scope. All the nations are gathered before him, the sheep and the goats together, and then separated into two groups. This is all people who have ever lived. It is Christ who judges as a king, to whom all authority and power in heaven and earth has been given which we see both in this passage and, of course, we're familiar with from the Great Commission um, and also other, other passages in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 15 speaks to this, this concept as well. And then another aspect that we see here in, in chapter 25 is that both the wicked and the righteous are judged according to their works. Now, this is, this is a part where I really want to comment on some. I hope I have enough time to, to do it justice. So this concept of judgment according to works um, is not in contrast to... So in, in affirming the Calvinistic and scriptural concept of total depravity, as Preston actually just talked to us some about, we don't affirm that people are only ever and in every single sense considered holy, sinful, and wicked. Scripture is very clear that many are considered righteous in God's sight. Now, we understand, of course, that this is based on justification by faith, the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. But sometimes as Christians, as evangelicals, we talk about people as only ever considered sinful in every context. Well, Scripture calls Abraham righteous. He said there are other people who are speak of as righteous. So we should understand this concept of, of being considered righteous in God's sight. 
<clears throat> so scripture and the confession then distinguishes between who we would be if left all on our own and who we are as redeemed people. We are a new creation, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.17, created in Christ for good works, said in Ephesians 2.10. And as I mentioned, Scripture, and so again our confession, distinguishes between salvation on our own merits and salvation by works and our deeds being considered on their own merits before God and salvation on the merit of Christ whose righteousness is imputed to us, and who bore our sins on him. So, the works of redeemed Christians, then, are in fact considered good, and are received by God as such. We see numerous declarations of this concept in in the New Testament. Uh, They are fully pleasing to him in Colossians uh, 1.10, Paul says that he does not cease to pray for them so that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, we recognize, as as Preston talked about, as our confession says, we still have sin in us. We still have that old nature, that old man, that is at war with the new man. So we are not talking about sinlessness here. We are not fully sinless. We also recognize that we all fail, even as redeemed Christians, to hit the full mark of an absolute full holiness where we engage in in works that are done out of a completely pure, perfect heart before God from start to finish throughout the course of our lives. But there's a distinction between that and our good works that are actually good that we engage in in true, genuine faith as a new creation in Christ. So when we're talking about this judgment here in Matthew 25, we can apply this biblical framework to the fact that Christ pronounces judgment on the basis of works. Specifically in this passage, whether we have cared for the physical needs of even the least of the brethren or not. Uh, this, This passage here where Jesus is talking focuses very heavily on this physical aspect. This isn't just, you know, did you pray or did you go to church? Did you clothe the the naked and feed the hungry and care for the sick? One more thing I think should be said about this notion of of judgment of believers. It's common, I think, in in some circles in evangelicalism to consider this, this thing where we will be brought before God. And sometimes the conception is is separately, like there's two different judgments. Unbelievers have theirs and, and we have ours where every single thing that you've ever done is laid bare but before everyone. Whether or not there's... I'm not in, in attempting at the moment to fully repudiate that. I'm mostly commenting on what we see here in the judgment in Matthew 25 and other passages that deal with it and what, what the purpose of the judgment is. Um, I'm going to read Matthew 25, 14 through 30. This is the parable just before this. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country, who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to every man according to his several ability, and straightway took his journey. Then he that had received the five talents went and traded with the same, and made him another five talents. And likewise, he that received two, he also gained another two. 
but that he that had received one went and dug in the earth and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and reckoned with them. And so he that had received five talents came and brought the other five, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. He also that had received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Then he that had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art a hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown, and gathering where thou hast not strewed. And I was afraid and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there thou hast what is thine. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not, and gather where I have not strewed. Thou therefore ought to have placed my money with the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have at least received mine own with interest. Take therefore the talent from him, and give it unto him that hath ten. For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from them that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Talent was uh, a unit of weight which was utilized for commercial transactions. And of course, here is, uh, acts as a metaphor for us for the overall life, tools, resources that God has given us. So this is helpful for us to recognize that what we're judged on is not, Christ doesn't bring everyone before him to drag out every last little minute detail. We're talking about the giving an account for the overall manner in which we spent our talents, whether in service to the kingdom or not. So, we are judged individually on the merits of his righteousness applied to us, manifested in our lives as seen in our words, thoughts, and deeds. So, our confession later, I'll comment on this more when we get there, talks about the the concept of the last judgment being a source of comfort for the believer. This should not primarily be a source of great dread for a regenerate, redeemed Christian concerned about the fact that, that we have done sins that we would rather not. We recognize that Christ has, has saved us and redeemed us from these. And yes, we would rather not have these brought before everyone and so on, this, this concern of dread because Christ is going to really rake us over the coals for each and every single one of all of these things. That's not the purpose of the last judgment. We are judged on the basis of the body of work, whether a life done in faithful service to our king or not. Our confession makes no room for easy believism here, because the scriptures do not. Faithful service to the king really matters. If our lives don't manifest that, we should be concerned, for we will be judged on these merits. If we are redeemed, we are a new creation in Christ. We will manifest this service to one degree or another, or we will be demonstrating that we have not really been changed. We have not really been redeemed. Does anyone have any questions on that part so far? In paragraph 2, we affirm 
First, that the end or purpose of this day of judgment is primarily for the glory of God to be seen through his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect and his justice in the eternal damnation of the reprobate. Preston was talking a few minutes ago about the fact that Christ, that, that God created the world and, and Adam and Eve for uh, his glory as the ultimate purpose and allowed sin, the fall of man, for his glory as the ultimate purpose. We hold, as, the, as we believe the scriptures do, that the glory of God is the ultimate purpose for which he is doing everything. And so, too, the, the last judgment, this day of judgment, is primarily for that, primarily seen in those two elements. God's mercy is shown in the eternal salvation of the elect, our confession says, in how he dispenses judgment toward them, deeming their sins covered by Christ and their works done in faith as good and right and pure. And they receive the fullness of joy and glory with everlasting rewards that rightly fits faithful service to the king. We have eternal life both in the quality or nature of it and in the length of it. Living in eternity and continuing service to and worship of our great God, King, and Savior. Contrasted with that, God's justice is shown in the eternal damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient, who know not God and obey not the gospel. They do not manifest this body of good works. They didn't feed the hungry. They didn't clothe the naked. And so they are then cast into everlasting torment and punished with everlasting destruction. Our confession is really quite clear on the eternality of hell. This, of course, is a, is a, is a controversy, particularly today. It has been in the past as well. Uh, you have a couple of different positions, whether that's annihilationism versus the eternality of hell, eternal conscious torment, some of those kinds of things. So one thing that I think is helpful to note just about our attitude towards Scripture, I have never heard somebody look at the terminology used in the confession that the wicked shall be cast aside into everlasting torments and punished with everlasting destruction. I've never heard anybody try to claim that those terms everlasting don't mean everlasting and eternal, right? We understand they could have chosen different words if that's what they meant. That's the words the author of the confession chose. Well, the authors of Scripture did the same thing. And we often want to go and say, well, maybe that's not where they really meant, or, you know, that we think they said this, and we, and we want to mean it's this thing over here. Scripture is, is very clear about the eternality here. Uh, first, I'm going to comment on this. The, the nature of judgment is the same for both the elect and the reprobate. So in terms of this concept of being judged, and then the rewards or punishment, the eternality of the reward of life, for the righteous implies the eternality of the punishment of hell. Sin against an infinitely holy God merits an infinite punishment. And I spoke on that when I talked about uh, uh, chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator. This is why Christ had to be both God and man. No uh, man as a man alone is capable of bearing this punishment. Second, Jesus clearly speaks the eternality of this punishment in Matthew twenty-five forty-six, And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. And there he himself notes the eternality of both the punishment of the wicked and of the life 
the life of the righteous. Third, uh, this is something I got from Waldron in his commentary here. Jesus says that it would be better for the one who had betrayed him in Matthew 26 if he had never been born. Logically, that doesn't make a lot of sense if there's a short period, if, if you either affirm something like universalism or if there's a short period of punishment and then you're just annihilated and you don't exist, surely it would be better. It is better to have enjoyed the good things that you had in life, the common grace of God, and then you deal with that and it's all over and you're good. Better, that's better than never having existed. Mark 9 is another passage which speaks to this concept where Jesus says that some will be cast into hell, into a fire that is never quenched, and where the worm dies not. I'm going to make just a really, really brief comment on this, and we can come back to it later if people have questions. Uh, he, he talks about the, the, I think the word is Gehenna, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, but the, there was a reference to a body pit where they would throw dead bodies and you would have maggots and worms and so on eating and he is referencing that concept of Gehenna as tied to the concept of hell and saying in hell the worm that's eating their bodies won't die so there's this again there's this eternal punishment concept mentioned here I think I have enough time I would like to talk about the timing of these events Our confession says in paragraph 1 of this chapter that at this time we will be judged and receive our reward or punishment, which is principally either eternal life or eternal damnation. And in paragraph 2 it says we are judged and then the righteous go into eternal life and the wicked go into everlasting torments. More directly from scripture... In Matthew 25, 41, which Casey read, Jesus tells the reprobate to depart from hell, from him at that time, into hell. And then concludes in verse 46 by saying that these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous will go into life eternal. There is a lot that can and ought to be said about our millennial positions. Premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism. Woody has talked a little bit about in one of our Uh, sections recently that we're not remotely trying to cover here this is not a comprehensive look i do think our confession and scripture presents a difficulty to the timing of a premillennial approach to this question when we talk about the fact that the way in which jesus presents this judgment the judgment occurs at Christ's second bodily coming. We don't see some kind of a a break or a, a separation of time there. When he returns, there's the judgment. And then at the conclusion of the judgment, the wicked are sent into everlasting torment and the righteous go into eternal life with Christ. So premillennialism, of course, has the idea that Jesus returns and sits on the throne on earth at that time to reign for a thousand years before the eternal state. And I think these two seem to indicate, the confession, the way it's worded, the passage we've looked at in scripture indicates that 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 timeline doesn't seem to fit with that. Uh, In 2 Thessalonians 4, 5 through 10, we read, This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. 
When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So the, the witness of scripture that I think we see here and would encourage anyone who, who is inclined towards this position to simply consider the, the data here, whether or not this, this accords. And, and we are certainly capable of discussing this at greater length and there's much more that could be said. But to consider the witness here, what seems to be the indication of the, the continuous nature of the timing of these events. That is by no means the, the final word on the millennial question in any way, something that is present here in our confession. Does anybody have any questions so far on the nature of the judgment, on the, the believers and, the, and unbelievers being together, what that looks like, or this, this timing question at this point? Cool. Our third paragraph. <clears throat> The reality of this day of judgment and our knowledge of it deters us from sin and comforts us. For we know that all injustices will be dealt with, even if not in this life, in the time frame when they occur. Um, Patrick spoke about some of the the world events going on. I'd already thought of speaking to this as well in in this section here uh, before I heard him talk. So whatever all of the facts and complexities of of international relations may be, certainly the terribleness and wickedness that we see around this in terms of the events of Ukraine, the war of Russia and Ukraine right now, and things that we've seen in Canada directly before that was ramping up, as well as here in the U.S., the things we've seen for the last two years, and elsewhere throughout the world and in history. But for us, particularly here, these are some of the, the most prominent factors. When justice seems nowhere to be found, when the righteous suffer, the wicked are in power, they seem like they're getting away with it, they're not held accountable right here, right now, we know that there is a day of judgment coming for the wicked. We can take comfort in and rest secure knowing that those things will be dealt with. We do not always, we often don't see them always taken care of here and now in our lifetime. They will be addressed. Christ will judge the wicked. We can take comfort in and courage from the reality and the finality of the judgment day. Finally, God has also intentionally determined that we should not know the date so that we won't decide to leave our affairs to the last minute or decide that how we live isn't all that important since the day of judgment won't come in our lifetimes. The first parable in Matthew 25 is actually about this, so we're basically covering the whole chapter, Matthew 25. Scripture speaks to this, the final judgment elsewhere. Matthew 25 is a really great place to to go for it. So uh, Matthew 25, the parable of the the ten virgins, ten went out, uh, took their lamps to meet the bridegroom, five of whom were wise and five were foolish. The, The foolish took no extra oil, and the, the five who were wise did. And it took long enough that at midnight that they were sleeping, at midnight there was a cry was made, and to go out and meet them, 
and the virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there not be enough for us and you, but go ye rather than sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour when the Son of Man cometh. So we have the the already not yet dynamic here as well. Uh, Actually, I'm going to comment on that in a minute. In terms of the the parable here, um, the, the preparation that was made by the wise virgins, they didn't take it for granted that Christ would come either soon or late. The, the wise versions made preparation. They were always watchful and always ready. They took stock of who they were and engaged in faithful service. The foolish ones did not. We should take this concept seriously then of the judgment day. In our confession, we also have the, the already not yet dynamic at work here, which speaks to the tension we can and should feel between recognizing and enjoying the good things that God has made and has given us, the time and place that God has put us in to joyfully embrace and to serve the kingdom, and the desire for ultimate righteousness to be dispensed, for the world to be cleansed of evil, for Christ to come and to judge the living and the dead. We can and should feel both of these And we should not sacrifice one for the other. We should neither be so eager to be done that we reject the goodness of God's world and the work that we have to do, the service that we ought to be engaged in and ought to provide with the current state, nor so at ease with the current state that we give little thought to our own hearts or the evil around us. God's plan is good, and so the timing of Christ's return is perfect, even though it has already been 2,000 years since some of these things occurred and these words were penned. Even so, we can say, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Does anyone have any questions at this point about anything we've covered, either that last section or anything else regarding the, the judgment or timing? It's an easy group today. I thought we might have more discussion. Yes, sir. I'm using a different translation of mm-hmm. the, uh, the confession. But it says, As Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin. Um, I saw the Ukrainian representative in NATO calling out the representatives of Russia, saying, Your war crimes, you are creating a special place in hell for your war crimes. And I thought it was interesting that, I mean, I don't know if that guy's a believer or not, but a general revelation, he understands that these wicked acts, they will be held accountable for this. Maybe not here, but someday. I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Married in, because our confession specifically says all men, not just Christian men. Amen. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. I, I got nothing to add to that. That's right on. That's right on. All right, let's close in prayer and we will have some lunch.